This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. William Massena. William, welcome. Uh, thank you for having me, Ariel. I'm very glad to be uh, on your podcast. You're absolutely welcome. I've been wanting to speak to you for a while. And one of the main reasons I wanted to chat with you as an example of someone who has taken a very a very trendy slice of, of watch popularity into a form of entrepreneurship. And I want to talk a little bit about Messena Lab and some of the things you're doing. And then overall, you know, where you came to this. I want to give the audience a little bit of context here, and I'll also want you to do some storytelling. I think it's important not to discuss the business model that William has pursued, but how he acquired the skills and the legitimacy to even do that to begin with. And this is part of the larger context of what watches are made today, why are they made, and how are they sold? And it's an interesting and ongoing conversation above and beyond the sort of mere appreciation of watches. William, are you excited about this conversation? Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> so, okay, so let's, let's talk about what Messina Lab is on a very basic level. It is a collaboration company where, and again, correct me where I'm wrong here, where you go to a company that you like, a watch brand that you like, and you say, I want you to, order, to produce a certain series to my spec that I will sell to my community. Is that more or less what's going on, or, is, or how would you modify it? <laughs> no, it's, it's not exactly this. Uh, first, we're not a collaboration uh, company. We, we do other things, too. We're kind of a studio. So we, we do watches on our own. We do collabs. Uh, I wrote a book uh, last year for um, Max Booster. Um, we produced a movie. We, we do different things. Uh, collab is maybe what people see uh, the most, and maybe this is where we're most vocal about uh, other collaborations. But it's just one part of the business. Um, and that part brings revenue to the company, which helps us do other things. Uh, our own watchers, um, other collabs. Uh, we also do secret launch where people don't even know that we launched a watch or even sold the watch. Uh, so we do very different things. But collaboration is the biggest part of it. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so I, I think that's actually an interesting part of the conversation is that many people like yourself, you know that you want to do business in the watch space. You've done it already. You have a comfort with the category. But even then, it's very difficult to sort of narrow it down. As you said, there's a bunch of things you do. Much of it is not even public. My suspicion is that as time goes on, you will simplify what you do because you will figure out what is you like. Because I feel like there's sort of an experimentation right now. It's not that you're necessarily, as part of your business model, doing a lot of things, but you don't know ultimately what will bring the most revenue, what you'll enjoy doing, what's even possible. Would you agree that there's a high degree of maybe experimentation still going on? Well, I, I think you're seeing the experimentation as a way for us to try to see what brings the most revenue, but that's not really the case. I mean, writing a book is not going to bring you money, and you don't need to write the book to know that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, producing a movie is in the watch world is not going to bring you money. It's mostly a... Um, most likely you're going to lose money. Um, and uh, watches are always a bet. I mean, the, the business is selling watches, making and selling watches. There's no question about it. Um, but at, at the end, it, it brings other things that we enjoy doing, uh, like movies, like books. Uh, and we have different other projects uh, coming up in the next two years. Um, but uh, these are maybe experiment to some, and they're definitely experiment to us. But it's not really all about uh, making money and trying to monetize uh, our experience or, or what we're doing for the company. Okay, so, and again, I think that it's, it's good to chat about this. But in general, I sort of want to demonstrate to people that there's not always a clear way of sort of making money. I think that's sort of my operative point, is that even if you've been in the industry for a very long time, once you want to start forming a business, it's still a lot of questions. What do you do? And even someone like William is, is sort of pulled between the projects that they like and that are fun and the ones that sort of make more sense 
on a business perspective. But let's go back to the public-facing side. If you go to the Messina Lab website, you will see watches that you have done with some other companies. I just, two days ago, got to see one of your latest ones. I saw your Louis Arard um, Messina Lab. This is a, a set of two different watches where um, you worked with the company and you took the regulator style display. And it's, it's lovely. It's really, really beautiful. Um, maybe, maybe just to sort of explain how these watches come about, you could describe this watch, where it came from, how people can buy. Just maybe this is a good example to see at least the more public facing side of Messina Lab. Yeah. Um, so Louis Erard uh, is a company based in Switzerland. They, they're a very old company. They're about 150 years old. Um, they, they've had their ups and downs. And in the last, I don't know, maybe five, six years, they uh, hired um, as a consultant slash CEO, somebody called Manuel Emsch that maybe some of you guys know. I'm sure you know about him. Uh, he's, been, he's been on the show. <laughs> oh, okay. So... Uh, Manuel and I go back years and maybe three years ago, Manuel asked me if I would love to do something with a company and we talked about it and we had a few ideas and uh, then he launched the watch with Alan Silberstein and Manuel in the sense with uh, Louis Erard have this program where they do collabs. So it's maybe the easiest person to do collabs with because they have this regulator and they do collabs. They've done it with uh, Alan Silberstein. They've done it with um, Vianney Alter. They have done it with people from Second Second. Um, and I think I'm the fourth one, or maybe the fifth one. I think Eric Giraud also was involved in one collab. So basically, they gave me carte blanche on the design. And we went back in the studio. We did a couple of drawings. We presented to them. And they decided, you know, which what they like, what they dislike. And we kind of collaborated in something that everybody was happy with. And that basically created the watch. So we made a... Uh, we made two series, one uh, gray dial, volume plated, and another one gold plated in 3N gold. Um, and we sold it on both platforms, um, on the Louis Erhard platform and on the Massinella platform. And that was, I think, on uh, in May, May or April, maybe. How April. would you describe the design? You know, it's it's... It's classic for sure. I'm sure you had something very specific that you're trying to go for. Help, help explain again. You're, you've done a great job of sort of you know describing how it came about. But if someone hasn't seen this watch, what was ins- what was the inspiration? So um, I I'm very much inspired by two part of the watch history, and one is the Bauhaus designs of the mid 30s. Uh, something you'll see with Patek Philippe, a lot of those uh, dials that look very um, architectural. Um, and uh, a lot of, you know, they, they look like um, uh, very straight lines. And another part that I like is uh, very early marine chronometers from the late uh, 18th century, early 19th century, when the French Navy and the British Navy were making those uh, eight days or two days um, big chronometer for on boats and for navigations. Um, so I combined both those. I had done already a design like this with um, Luca Soprana. Um, that was a $50,000 watch that we did last year. Um, and I wanted to, in, to add some element of both the uh, sector dials uh, of the 30s to uh, the marine chronometers. So we kind of created that two, um, I would say two floor, two stage uh, dials where you have uh, a background that is gold or rhodium under Louis Ra, and then you have little steps with uh, maybe the markings that look like a sector dial that are brushed steel uh, with blue um, humerals and markings. Um, on a higher step of the bezel of the of the dial close to the bezel. Perfect. That's exactly what I, I wanted you to say. That really well describes what you're thinking about. Um, for people that haven't seen these roughly 125 year old um, instrument clocks, they're I wouldn't call them sport watches, but they were definitely meant to be legible and, and meant to be highly precise. These are fantastic things. They look great. Um, they're, they're very three-dimensional as well, and uh, there's a beauty in them that many people have tried to capture in wristwatch dials. 
companies like Ulysses Nardan have, have been doing so for quite a while, but there's such a, there's a, a whole generation of these types of things. Um, really a great, a great sort of background uh, for a timepiece. So I just wanted to tell you that I thought those were particularly well done. Let's, let's go back a little bit because to do what you do, to sit there and to know who to collaborate with, what the end result should be, you need to know a lot of things. One, you need to be a very seasoned collector yourself, and you need to know the, the reaction from the audience. I think one of the biggest challenges that creators have in this space, and I like to speak to creators because a lot of them listen to the show, is they have this amazing idea, they end up making it, and then like only them and their three friends like it, and no one else likes it. And they're like, what happened? I was so into this. No one, no one else liked this. What's wrong? And oftentimes the problem is that you just need to spend a lot more time to educate people, you need to be patient. But if you want to be an entrepreneur, of course, you have to sell things. And so that my, I guess my idea here is that because of your time in the community, you have sort of this implicit idea of what sells, what moves, what people buy. Talk a little bit about sort of having your finger on the pulse of the community and, and how that's very important to your entrepreneurial endeavors. Um, I, I think that, uh, I, I'm not sure that I have my finger, to be honest with you, on, on the community. I, I think I, I see what people wear. I'm, I'm active on social media. I obviously follow Instagram. I read a lot uh, on the internet. Um, uh, I, go, I still go on forums. Um, and I, I start to listen and read what people are saying, and I try to analyze what the next trend will be. I mean, I, I make mistakes. It's not, you know, it's not always a, uh, a crap shot. I mean, you you can not always uh, make what people want. But I, my my goal, what I really want to do is things for myself, and and I think that I can absorb a lot of what's in my environment and create a watch that I want for myself at that specific time. And it happens that there's maybe 10 friends that want the same watch. So I sell it to those 10 friends. Um, but in, in a way, I don't think that I really have a vision about what people want and I give it to them. I, I, I'm really a sponge who absorb what I see in my environment. And I do travel. I do go to, uh, you know, all the shows. I do talk to a lot of people, obviously. And, and I get the input and I, and I read the comments and I, I, I really absorb what I'm being told, and I try to uh, to show it into my work. As simple as that. William, you're being humble. You're being humble. It's nice that you're being humble, but let's be honest. I mean, we're going to talk about this a little bit. You have more experience observing the reactions of other watch enthusiasts than the vast majority of enthusiasts. Because you have community leadership experience, like I do, you have a tendency to see how people react. So you're right. At the end of the day, you should be making a product for yourself and you hope there's other people out there. But there, I'm sure there's super weird stuff that you can make that just make you happy that other people will be like, I guess that's cool, but I have no idea why you like it. Like You are specifically going towards a, uh, a, a commercially viable direction. And my presumption is that as intelligent as we all may be, it requires experience by seeing other people's reactions for a number of years because again don't you agree that there is the risk of making a product that nobody wants yes obviously and but it's very cyclical i think that uh because i've been around so long you i'm telling you stories we are telling a story you're telling a story Ariel. we we we're storytellers so as you say by telling a story and listening to what the audience reaction we know if there's interest or not and i think that story um that story comes back. I mean, there's many stories and they come back and go away or forgotten. And now we, we rehash it, them again. We repeat them and people may bring interest in that. And that's basically what watchmaking is about. You, you tell a story and the audience reacts to the story. They tell you it's news to us or it's all news and we don't care about it. And uh, by, by this, you basically have an idea. Uh, you can gauge how the audience will buy your watch or not. And my watches are stories. And, and I tell a story, and if they like it, I will buy the watch, I think. Um, it's, uh, this is where the experience comes, I think. The, the, the ability to remember that story from 20 or 30 years ago and to repeat it to a, a brand new audience of people that have never heard it before. So let's go back in time a little bit and talk about how you became a, a participant of the watch collector community, your time goes back to the era of the forum, which is when I really first started. 
let's let's participate in sort of a, a fantasy time machine. Let's go back to say maybe the year two thousand or so. What was okay. what was the internet space for watch community, watch appreciation, watch sales like? And then and then sort of maybe fast forward twenty years later and explain a little bit how it's changed. I just I want people who are relatively new to the watch enthusiast community who have never known much beyond Instagram to understand what this community was like. 20 years ago, and how that was very, very different than today. So if you don't mind, I'll go maybe a little bit further. I'll go sure, 25 sure. years ago. And, and the reason is because um, 1999, 2000, a lot of things happened and kind of changed the community. And that was maybe the first revolution into uh, watches. Um, so in the, in the mid-90s, there was basically uh, just a few forums uh, talking about watches on the internet. The biggest one was Time Zone. There was another one called WatchNet. Um, and then there's another one that came out, came later called uh, The Purest Pro, The Purest and then The Purest Pro. Uh, and basically, it was a bunch of collectors from all over the world talking watches, comparing prices, feeding themselves information. Um, and, and that was basically it. Uh, and you had maybe 20, 30, 50 and it was slowly growing. And by the mean, by 1997, 1998, you started to have a fairly big community of guys exchanging information on forms. Brands couldn't care less about those guys. Uh, retailers couldn't care, care, couldn't care about those guys. But by 1997, 1998, those guys start traveling to other uh, different shows and they will travel in groups. So you won't have one guy going by himself to Basel. You have 50 guys meeting at one point in Basel and going to a booth to look at stuff. So brands started to see stuff. They started to see there were collectors and start to open themselves to the community. By the late 90s, um, because of the dot-com era, you had um, the owners of those sites that, you know, they invested very little in them. Uh, the content was created by the community itself, but the owners, the physical owner of the uh, IP address, sold those sites to a big dot-com companies. So uh, it was um, companies that are now bankrupt. Uh, Ashford.com, um, you had eBay at one point wanted to buy things. And by 2000, all those um uh, sites were owned by uh, big groups of uh, early dot-com companies, which one after another went bankrupt. And uh, the few that didn't go bankrupt didn't know what to do with those. So they basically sold them back to uh, their previous owners. And this is basically what happened to Time Zone. And, um, and then between 2000, I would say, to 2005, you had a great creation of content on those sites. So the, the sites went back to the original owners, to the collectors, and they realized that they had to talk and bring information and try to create a library of uh, information to collectors. Uh, and you basically had what I call the, the golden era of um, forums where a lot of information was being produced the major problem with that was that there was nobody really to take care of uh, classifying that information. Um, the other problem was that it was extremely amateurish in, in very different ways. You had, you didn't have professional writing articles. You had watch guys that just were geeking out on watches. So some stuff was really good. Other stuff was not good. Uh, and you also had the fact that some information was simply wrong and some information was ex excellent. But it was very hard for a reader to know which was what. Uh, and that's basically where it went uh, up to 2005. That's a good summary of yeah, 1985, yeah, I'm, 2005. I'm, I mean, look, you're the guy to ask about that. You were a veteran when I entered the space in 2007, and I had to learn from you and the people that you know populated all those community websites what things were like. And I saw the transition from <clears throat> the internet being a dirty word to the watch brands the internet being something that they want everything about. And one of the things I've noticed is how uncommunal the watch industry community can be. And, and you, you hinted about this, and I think it's interesting. If the, if the community does something popular, make a website, finds a business model or whatever, rather than the industry wanting to work with the community, they just want to buy it or do it themselves. Oh, you guys have something cool that you got going on? 
no, we don't want to work with you. We just want to own it or copy it or do it ourselves. There's an interesting lack of collaboration that the Swiss watch industry mainly wants to do with people outside of Switzerland. And they're okay collaborating with themselves. But talk a little bit about some of these cultural problems because having all these watch collectors around the world, having the internet, all of it requires cooperation with other people. And yet cooperation with other people appears to be one of the primary weaknesses of some of the Swiss watchmakers. So talk about how these uh, competing interests sort of played out in some of your experience in them. Um, it's, a, it's a good question. Uh, the, the Swiss, um, I think the, the mentality is very different from an American mentality. The Swiss live in a tiny country in the middle of our Europe. There are, you know, there's no sea, there are around mountains, and they have a very isolating culture where they, they dread foreigners. They Anything that comes from the outside is kind of people are suspicious about. So that translates into the one of the most important industries, uh, banks, where it's all about secrecy um, and not giving information. And, you know, and uh, then you have uh, watchmaking. And watchmaking has been, for maybe 100 years, the biggest export uh, of luxury for the Swiss, uh, besides, and I think after... Um, after medication, after biotech, it's maybe the biggest export uh, in the world. Um, and, and the Swiss always have that fear of foreigners and uh, the implication that that could have on their companies and on their goods and commodities. So basically, anything that comes from um, the outsiders, and in this case, the internet came really from the US uh, and, and also from Asia, um, uh, they were very suspicious about it. Uh, Rolex had uh, no website in 1999. I think the Rolex website came out in 2000. Um, and, and a lot of companies followed after Rolex. So and uh, that gives you kind of an idea how uh, companies work in Switzerland. I remember a few years ago, maybe five five years ago, I was in Basel and a, a company that should not be named was all excited to tell me that they were finally on YouTube. Um, and, and that kind of gives you an idea of how the Swiss work. So having um, blogs or having forums come and start talking about their things, they couldn't control it. And the reason they couldn't control it is those people didn't need money uh, from advertising. So the Swiss or a lot of the watch companies were used to uh, oppress uh, talking about their product from people they, they give advertising to. So we pay you, therefore you're only going to say very positive things about our goods because we give you money for advertising. And blogs and the internet uh, and the forums came out and started being critical of the product, uh, giving real reviews from owners, from people that have experience with the product that were trying to be unbiased and the Swiss were very nervous. Uh, why are they saying bad things about product? Why are they saying all these things about the service we provided on the repair? Uh, and this was, uh, I think, a big shock to uh, Swiss companies. A lot of them thought that they would go away. Uh, soon people would go back to reading a magazine and uh, looking at glossy pictures. And, uh, and that was it. But um, for a very long time, uh, they were very, very worried about um, the internet in general. That's very interesting, and I, I, I agree with everything you're saying. That's really what I saw. I mean, we could go into this a lot more. I just, you know, I think it's funny that when you go to Switzerland, they have this weird tendency to take business models they like and try to do it themselves. So just as outside of the watch space, you know, the one that comes to mind is Swiss Post. This is their, their, you know, they're obviously their post office thing, but they always have these things. They call it the Swiss version of something, you know, <laughs> even, even Swiss cheese, but they have like, you know, the, Sw the Swiss hamburger place, uh, the Swiss e-commerce place, uh, the Swiss gym. They take these ideas that have worked elsewhere and rather than fully import that idea or that business, they kind of revise it for their own preferences. And so you're absolutely right that they have this obsession with control. I don't quite understand what they're so afraid of insofar that, you know, just bringing in an entire other business from a different country and their model, what they're, what they're afraid of. But you're absolutely right that there's this tendency. Um, and I think that they were very, very naive uh, in those years that you were talking about when it came to how users would use the internet to buy the products. They did not 
They did not want to believe that consumers were critical of the watches, that there was you know, better watches and worse watches. They did not want people speaking with one another, especially about prices. Um, there was a lot of, we'll just call them behaviors, that they just sort of seemed to wish you know, never existed and did go around. And I would be in meetings with them. And I remember having a meeting years ago with a, a CEO of a brand who could not really could not get his mind around the idea that in the United States and elsewhere, people were buying things like appliances on the internet, like microwaves. He just couldn't believe that someone wouldn't go to a store and speak to a trusted salesperson where they could ask questions and that they, they had a place they could return it if there was problems. He just couldn't wrap his mind around the fact that so many people were buying things like appliances and whatever online Obviously, he turned out to be you know, completely wrong insofar as thinking that people weren't do this, doing this as much. And then in Switzerland, they started doing this later. But it's, it's very interesting that unless these signals fully pre- penetrate the Swiss mentality, it's sort of like it's not happening in the world. And I find that very interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, uh, it's very insular. Uh, you can see this in other countries, uh, islands, a uh, few islands are like this, um, island countries. It's that, that insularity makes it um, that they need to bring things and make them their own or believe that they made it their own. I mean, you give the example of the Swiss hamburger. I mean, the Swiss burger is uh, totally ridiculous. It's, uh, but they, they, they want to believe, they have this make-believe that, yeah, it's a, it's a Swiss version of something that we imported and we made it our own. But the only thing they did is basically put a Swiss flag on it and call it the Swiss burger. Um, and it's it's very much Swiss in mentality. It's silly, right? Very it's much. actually silly yeah. to a degree. Yeah, very much so. Very much. And and the thing yes. is, they they don't see that we from other external cultures see right through them. I mean, the Swiss are obsessed with discretion, and to a degree, they do a good job. But it never ceases to amaze me when they think they're such good at tricking people, and they don't realize when some people can see right through them. Like, they never would have believed that we can see their tricks and their tactics. True, but at the same time, it has, advan- <laughs> at the same time, it has advantages. And, and one of them is protecting things that may be lost for a long time. And watchmaking was one of those. I mean, obviously, they had skin in the game, uh, but by being stubborn about it and by not wanting to giving up, they basically uh, made an industry that should have been dead by now still survive and even thrive uh, because they want to keep it the Swiss way. Uh, had they, you know, just taken the quartz um, and movement and said, okay, now it's Swiss, 100% Swiss, and all our watch are going to be with a Swiss quartz watch, you'll be, you and I wouldn't have a job today. Is that true, though? I mean, you, you, you presuppose that without their obsessive level of control, the watch industry wouldn't have gotten back up off the ground. And again, I'm not saying that's true or not, but what I do know is that it was mostly success in countries that were very little like Switzerland that let the watch industry grow again. The United States, many parts of Asia, parts of South America, China, India. You know, these are the places that in the modern sense have allowed the watch industry to grow. These are places that have values very different than Switzerland. So I'm I'm wondering if what you're saying is absolutely true. If 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 they wouldn't have been successful, maybe even more so without their obsessive level of control. Well, I I think the obsessive level of control is the fact that they had the movement making abilities, and they could have just shut them down and be like, let's move on, and you know, sweet give Swiss citizenship to all those quartz movement and just move on with this. And they would have been dead by now. I mean, Switzerland would not be longer be a, a country of making watches. Because they were obsessively, um, um, I, I would say, guarded about the movements and they were obsessively not wanting to evolve, in a certain ways, it came back and saved their ass. I mean, I think Rolex uh, is the exact example of this. They did, they did not fully embrace quartz. And they, they were obsessively staying with mechanical watchers when the entire world was not. Uh, and so was Patek. And those two guys basically saved the industry by just not wanting to change course. Nearly at the edge of bankruptcy, they still, you know, they were still born and didn't want to change. And yes, it's the world who saved them. There's no question about it. It's America, it's Asia who saved the industry. But the, 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 the chicken... Uh, who made the egg is still the Swiss who were still making the watches. And I think that if those guys had 
basically given up and say, okay, we're absorbing the new technology that's coming from Asia, the quartz thing, and we're trying to make it Swiss, and we're forgetting the the mechanical watches, there will not be watches to collect. There will not be mechanical watches. Maybe we'll be all collecting vintage watches. That is true. I mean, you're right. On a larger level, you have to give the Swiss a lot of credit for being very persistently invested in the traditional watch industry, whether or not it really made sense to the world. So you're right. Their insularity in making business decisions like, hey, should we still invest a lot of money in mechanical watches? If you look at the outside world too much, the answer that you'd probably conclude is, no, no, we shouldn't do that. But if you do it sort of the Swiss way, you can get to that. And, and I agree, their particular way of thinking has lent itself very well to the product, even if they don't necessarily know how to sell or communicate or distribute that product. But making the product, they're still very, very good at. And, 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 and in, your, in your business pursuit, where you are now making watches and things like that, there's a lot of options out there. You can get watches made entirely in the Far East. You can get watches made entirely in Switzerland and some combination thereof. Talk a little bit about that. Does it still make the most sense to get everything made in Switzerland? Um, is, it, is it cost effective in Asia still? Are things changing? From a sheer, you know, how watches are made and what makes sense these days, talk a little bit about that for people. It's all about the price point and what you're trying to do at the end of the day. Uh, if you're trying to make a $40,000 watch, you should have everything made in Switzerland. Uh, the quality is far more superior than anything that comes out of Asia. Um, the question is cost. Cost is uh, a 10 multiplier as soon as you, you want to do everything in Switzerland. Um, and uh, Asia has the advantage of being, let's say, 95% the quality of a Swiss product, but uh, maybe a tenth of the price. Uh, and then it's a question of what do you want for your product and what kind of um, essential qualities you want a product to have. I mean, I've, I have yet to make a watch that is uh, um, 100% Asian, and I have, uh, but I have done a watch that is 100% Swiss, which is a Luca Soprana, which I've done with Luca, uh, and that's a $39,500 watch. For me, dealing with the Swiss and dealing with the product can be much more difficult, actually, than dealing with having you know a case back made or a dial made uh, in Asia. There's a big difference there. Um, but the product itself is uh, very different, very different. Even if they're the same um, component, I mean, if they're the same um, um, complication, uh, you can have uh, you know a chronograph made in Switzerland versus a chronograph made uh, with the Swiss movement. Uh, with, we're keeping the Swiss movement the same. Let, let's say we're using a Silita, a chronograph, a Silita chronograph made entirely in Switzerland, and a Silita watch is made with the Asian case and an Asian dad are very different animals. Very different animals. Explain, explain a little bit about that. Because again, there's a lot of people who are creators and also just buyers who see that there's very big differences in the price. And I think this is really important for people to understand. There are sometimes tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars between watches that on an outside may not look that different. Talk a little bit about some of the Biggest differences between the expensive Swiss manufacturing and the budget, not it's not always budget, but the budget Far East uh, manufacturing. I'll give you I'll give you a straight example. I think sure. it's much easier for an audience to understand. Uh, we did a watch, and you can go on our website and look at it. It's called the Uni Racer, uh, and the Uni Racer is basically um, the uh, Uni Compacts from uh, Universal Genève. And when I did this project, I really wanted to do a watch that was basically the same as the Unicompacts uh, from uh, Universal Genève. The issue, uh, I want this, just a couple of differences. Obviously, the movements are not the same. Um, the size is different. The original was 35 millimeter, mine is 39 millimeter. Uh, and the, um, uh, the minute counter on the original was a 45 minute minute counter, mine is a 60 minute. But besides that, it's exactly the same watch. So when we started the project, I wanted to do something below $2,000. I wanted to do something that was much more aggressive in pricing. Um, I, I thought that, you know, the Universal Genève was not an expensive watch originally. The uh, Massena Lab version of it shouldn't be an expensive watch either. 
the uh, but I really want to keep that very specific uh, specificities of the original watches. And that was the most important one was the uh, glass. The glass had to be uh, plastic. It had to be a plastic glass, a satellite, whatever you want to call it, what uh, Omega use on the uh, Speedmaster. I could not do this out of Asia. The tolerance on the case from an Asian maker was um, uh, was making the, the, the watch absolutely not water resistant. It would basically... Uh, bring water in as soon as uh, there was uh, rain uh, and you had the watch on your wrist. So the tolerance that the Chinese were willing to do on the case versus the glass was not something that made the watch viable. We had to go with uh, uh, Swiss on the case and on the on the uh, uh, on the crystal in order to have the tolerance that would make the watch. Uh, 50 meters or 100 meter water resistant. In, the, in our case, we needed 50 meters, but actually in test, it can go up to 100 meters. Uh, but that's something that only a Swiss can do. And there's only one guy in Switzerland who makes plastic glasses that is not owned by a group, which means that is not owned by Swatch. Um, <laughs> and that was it. I.e., they won't do it for you. Correct. Yeah, no, they won't do it for you. You ha- But there's another guy who will do it for you. And, and, and that guy did it for us. But it's much more expensive components. My glass uh, cost me nearly a uh, hundred bucks, which is crazy money for uh, for a glass. It's uh, and I think a Chinese one will cost you a dollar or two. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. You can buy your wristwatches elsewhere, but at the Blog to Watch store, you can celebrate your watch collecting hobby with high quality original products. The Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at a Blog to Watch. We also carry some incredible art that will grate on your walls, letting everyone know about your watch collecting enthusiasm. The bespoke yet affordable products which the Blog to Watch store carries have been designed and curated by the Blog to Watch editorial team. We ship internationally and right now are offering free global FedEx priority shipping on every shirt and watch pouch. We add new products all the time, so be sure to check out store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. Yeah, I think that's uh, so important that it worth, it's worth repeating. When you see the price of a watch, the retail price of a watch, it's usually an outcome of how much that co- watch costs to produce, right? Someone says, I need to make it first, and then I need to build a margin on top of that. Producing a nice watch at a low price is the trick. If you have a very high budget, you can make just about anything you want these days, no problem. The trick is in getting the quality you need, the correct sizes, parts, finishes, whatever, at the volumes you do at a price that isn't insane. And that is an art, it's a skill, it's relationship building, it's having a reputation, it's being pushy. It is not a cut and dry thing of, hey, manufacturer, make this for me. I can't wait to get my order on the on the promised time. I mean, sometimes, you know, suppliers, they won't deliver until you pay more. They change the delivery dates. There's every kind of insane, skeezy thing which can happen that will make a watch, you know, too expensive and, and not necessarily commercially viable. How often do you run into this issue? Because I imagine that while you want to make money, you also probably want to price watches at a, at a price that seems fair and, and competitive. Um, talk a little bit about sort of the, the, the practice, practice of pricing and maybe some of the frustrations behind it. Um, well, it's very interesting. I, I just I, I'm, uh, To answer your question, I'm going to use another example that I read about yesterday. There's a very famous restaurant in, um, in Scandinavia. I think it's in, uh, in Denmark called Noma. And Noma is maybe one of the most expensive and one of the best restaurants in the world. And they serve a $700 lunch, uh, $700 prefixed lunch, and that's U.S. dollars. And they say that on this lunch, they're losing money. They're losing money for a lot of reasons, to keep the staff, to keep the light on, to uh, the ingredient they're using. And uh, obviously, it's it's not a, a three-course lunch. It's a seven-course or eight-course lunch, I'm not sure. And those people cannot make money out of this. Um, and you can find this a lot in watchmaking. Um, you're looking at a watch and you're like, why is this watch costing us 
10 times more than the, the same watch from another maker that could be very similar in looks. But the truth is the quality can be completely different. And more often than you believe, the higher you go in prices, less margins and less money the person is making. I know it sounds very counterintuitive. And obviously, I'm talking here about small independent uh, makers, micro brands, uh, people like me, or obviously uh, small independents like Kari Vutilainen, you know, high-end guys. The higher you go in price, the less money or the less percentage uh, of money they're making. Um, and I, it's very counterintuitive. And the reason is that the the more you make things, the lower your pricing, the, the less you're interested in your quality and the more you're interested in your volume. Um, and, and that makes a big difference. Uh, and a lot of people are focused on the movement. They compare movements to movement. Oh, this guy has a Celita. This guy is also a Celita. Why are they a $1,000 apart? It's exactly the same movement. The movement is not so important to the watch. The movement is an important component, but it doesn't make the watch. The watch is made of many different things. You have the acrylic crystal, can be a sapphire crystal. You have the leather strap. You have the case. You have the pushers. Um, you have, uh, obviously, the quality of the movement that is used, meaning it can be the same movement, but it can be different level of quality from the manufacturers. Um, it can be the case back. It can be the way uh, the watch was assembled. There's a lot of different things that makes a watch. Uh, and and working on a project when you do a watch in small quantity, and when I say small quantity, I'm saying maybe 100 to 100 watches is the manufacturer, because of the small quantity, has to uh, has two options. Or he makes just a small quantity or he makes a huge amount of quantity and he just sells you whatever he decided to sell you. So he has to amortize the cost on that part. Uh, and... Um, that's one way of doing it. Yeah. And then they will sell you, you know, different dials and different options over time. The other way to do it is you just do the little, you know, 50 batch that you want to do. And you tell, okay, I make it for price X and I'm going to want to make this profit and I'm selling it for price Y. Uh, my cost is X, the price is Y, this is my profit. And if people don't want to buy it, I, I won't sell my watch. A lot of people fail because of this because they fail to translate and explain to the to potential buyer why the price Y is better than the competitor who has a price that is maybe X minus 20%, your cost minus 20%. So let's actually talk about how to do that. I think that's a very important thing. It's one of the biggest failures in this industry is you have something amazing, it, it's not cheap, and you have to really explain to someone what the value proposition is. I'm not just talking about letting people know that the watch exists. What for you is the right strategy? And it's not a one-shot deal. It takes a few conversations. How do you convince people that something is worth the asking price? It's much harder on the less expensive watches than it is on the very expensive watches. I'm using Luca Soprana a lot in this uh, podcast because he's the high end for me. He's a $40,000 watch and he's really everything is made by hand by one guy in his atelier in Switzerland. Uh, case, uh, movement, every part of it. Uh, he doesn't kill the alligator yet, but I think at one point he will do that, raise alligator and kill them for the strap. He is that kind of guy that'd be crazy, that do everything. Um, so when I sell one of those watches at 40 grand, the guy who's buying it, he knows. There's not much talking that needs to be done. He sees the finishing, he sees the angle, he sees that, you know, the... Uh, the polybrosse, the uh, uh, the black polish. You see all this stuff, and it doesn't need much explanation. It's on the lower end. It's in the fifteen hundred, two thousand uh, dollar retail price range. That it becomes much more complicated to sell a watch, actually. And this is where people have a very uh, different understanding of where value is. Um, and and they will look at two similar, very similar watches and think that. They're comparing apples to apples, but actually, somewhat they are. But one apple, as you know, is made off season in a weird place that is not exactly uh, a plantation of apple, and the other one is made in uh, trees in the south of France and uh, by a small guy who has uh, you know three acres of those trees, and he's and he he does it by hand. He goes and select each apple by hand, but people don't really see that difference. 
all they see is two Apple and one is five bucks and the other one is a dollar. Uh, and it's very hard <laughs> for them to, to see the difference until it, they taste it. Yeah. When they taste it, they, then they realize. Well, and this goes to the sort of notion of being cultured. And I think that one of the things that you notice in this space when you go to these watch media groups is there's this, there are people that are genuinely cultured, meaning they've had these experiences, they've tasted those different apples, fruits, wines, foods, whatever, they know the differences. And then there's this group of people that want to appear as though they're more cultured than they are. They're very impatient. They, they want to be accepted by this community. And over the years, you and I have both in our own way seen a lot of people who are not actually cultured, but aspirationally cultured. And they're like trying to get acceptance from other people. What are these people after? Are they after friends? Are they after business connections? I've always wondered, you know, myself with their psychologies, and I'd love your opinion. The people who participate in these watch collector groups that aren't really that passionate about it, but seem to want some type of validation or want to pose as someone who is a watch enthusiast, what, what are they trying to get out of it? I, I, I have a hard time knowing what people, people's motivations are. I know that you have people that like to hit on watches. Like anything comes out and you have the guy who's going to criticize the watch. It's a piece of crap. It's terrible. I hate it. It's never good enough. And living in New York City, I, I, I can see that this is kind of a, a way of living, that you have people who are like this. You know, they... I have friends that have been looking for an apartment in the city for 30 years, and every time they go visit an apartment, it has something wrong with it. And in certain ways, they are uh, apartment experts for visiting so many apartments, and they may be price experts for visiting so many apartments and talking to so many brokers, but they have no experience owning an apartment, so they have no experience of ownership, so they don't know what it is about having an apartment. And and that's where... Um, you have those guys sitting at home on the computer being watch experts about everything and they've never been to a show, they have never bought a watch, uh, they have read a ton, there's no question about it, and they can use Google to find information. But the true experience is really through owning. Uh, and the, at our level, whether you are rich and you want to own the expensive watches and your budget doesn't allow you to do this, owning a lot of micro brands gives you a lot of experience too. And real experience where you, when you say something, you really mean it because you have touched and used the product. And, and that's those people that I basically try to reach out to. People where you put the hand, the watch in, on their hand, uh, on their wrist, and right away they know that they have a quality product. And that's important to us, very important. So where do you take things exactly? I mean, we've had such a great conversation talking about some of the background and things like that. I hope that, you know, this discussion helps people understand, you know, who William Messina is and why he does what he does. I, I, I hope that you'll be able to talk more and more about the secret projects you do. But right now, given what's going on, and maybe you know the state of the world affects things, where do you want to go with it? Or maybe where do you still want to experiment? I guess the real question isn't necessarily a preview of what you are going to do, but where does your heart want to take the business? And what do you want to continue to explore and experiment with? I, I I have to admit I prefer to do the more expensive stuff. Uh, it's more fun for me because it's more the stuff I like to buy for myself. So I you know I like to work with independent makers. Uh, I like to make crazy watches and with crazy movements with independent makers. And you will see a few of those coming in the next few years. Uh, but also I, again I also I also I'm a guy who likes cheap watches. I have to admit I have this really crazy thing and when i say cheap watches i'm meaning 500 to five thousand dollars that's what i call the cheap the cheap stuff um and i i really love this stuff i unimatic for example is uh a brand that i love working with uh they're great guys uh they make great products uh it's obviously mostly made in asia but they come now with swiss movements they you know the, the seiko nh35 is not so bad um and I love working with them. I love creating new designs with them and exploring with them different possibilities with their brand. Uh, that's something I really enjoy doing, and I don't see I'm, I don't see myself stopping doing it. Um, I also love working with companies like Habring uh, because I think that quality price wise, nothing beats Habring today. You get a small independent maker that makes less than a thousand watches a year, who sells uh, in-house movement 
modify with special, unique uh, complication for less than $10,000. Who does this? Nobody. That won three or four uh, Grand Prix of horlogerie uh, prices. They, they are two watchmakers in the middle of nowhere, Austria. Great people. Uh, and I like working with those guys. So it's for me, it's more a question of people than watchers. I don't look so much at the... If I like working with somebody and I have an idea and I think that it will make a good watch and that people will enjoy it, and I pitch it to them and they like the idea, we do it. And, and that's the way I see it. There's not really a plan of I'm going to do uh, this this year and this next year and then we're going to do this in 2027 and 2028. Uh we we plan things for the next thirty six months. I have we have to because of the the way watches are being produced. But beyond that, it's just a conversation that I have with different people, like I had with uh, Manuel Ange, when I have with Richard and Maria Habring or anybody else. We we have conversation, and if we feel like we can do something again together, we'll do it. Now. I think that's very interesting how a lot of it sort of ends up on the conversation, what this particular watchmaker or artisan wants to do. But they won't do this for anyone. And I think the important part that is not being spoken about so much is how do you get them to say yes? These are risk-averse people who tend to be conservative. Yes, they want to make a wave. Yes, they want to be original. But at the end of the day, they want to make products that sell. What is it about your persuasiveness, your uh, success, your you know your reputation. What allows you to get them to say yes to you? Is it something about the business model? I just think that's very important because people need to realize that a lot of these more popular watchmakers they're asked to do special projects all day long. Retailers, store, you know, other kinds of stores, people such as yourself, media outlets. Everybody wants them to do something special these days. They can't do with everyone. How 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 do you make sure they continue to work with you? Well, there's two things. First of all, I pitch, I pitch maybe 20 projects a year, uh, to maybe 10 different people. And I get maybe eight, nine, 10, 12 no's. I mean, it's not because you dated five supermodels that you just dated five supermodels. You may have tried to date 5,000 supermodels, but if five said yes, um, at the end of the day, that's the way I work. I, I Usually it's one collab and you pitch it and they say yes or nay. If they say yes, you work with them. And at the end, you make beautiful products that you sell. And, and then you decide, was this a great collab? These people like working with me. They like working with them. Was our product successful? Uh, are we happy with this baby? Sometimes we just have one idea and then we move on and that's it. But sometimes we had more than one idea and uh, we... We continue and we, we like working together and for, I don't know, there can be different motivation for the brands. Uh, there can be a, a motivation for me to get the thing evolved. I, I give you another example, Unimatic. We did three watches with Unimatic. Uh, the uh, MLs, the, uh, the first one had a brown dial, looked like a 1950s Rolex. The second one looked like a, a 1960s two-door MN. And the third one looked like a Bund, Blancpain Bund from the 70s. And these I pitched them uh, to uh, Unimatic when I saw them the first time. I, I, I saw right away that we could do those three watches. So we agreed to do one, and we knew that if that would be successful, the first one, we did 100 watches, uh, we'll go for the second one. And if the second one is also successful, we we'll go for the third one. By the time we were doing the second one, we knew we'll do the third one. But the idea was when I pitched them the, the, the concept, I pitched them the whole story um, and, and they liked it. And we agreed that it was tough times. It, it was right, it, that was pitched a year before um, COVID. That was, the, the whole thing was pitched to them in 2019. And we released the first one in March of 2020. But uh, we knew uh, by uh, the, the evening of March 3rd that it was going to be a great success. So we, we agreed that we were going to launch the second one. But we weren't sure that we would like working with each other. And it's, it's really a question of working together and being able to work together. People have reputation and uh, sometimes they think, you know, oh, I'm not going to be able to work with that person. And you end up that it's actually quite the opposite. One of the things that I think you're saying that I want to point out is that when you go to these brands, 
you have an idea. In fact, it sounds like you even come up with a visual, like meaning you have, you know, like a mock-up of a design possibly. You are acting as a creative director. You're adding the component that often they're missing and is what to make. Remember, most of these brands are factories. They are set up to produce something on spec. Tell us what to make it, we'll make it. That's essentially how a lot of watch brands are set up. In fact, the whole design and marketing and all that is a completely different wing and arm than that of the manufacturing. So when someone like William goes to them and says, I have an idea complete with a story and a theme, all you guys need to do is decide whether or not you're going to make it. I believe that you are not only adding the missing part for them, but you're making it easy. The worst thing you can do is say, hey guys, let's do a watch together. I'm not sure what, what sounds fun. Like they might be open-minded to it, but I believe again, a lot of your success is that you are you are participating as a creative director. I am not a creative director. I'm more of a producer because I offer them three things. I offer them the storyline. I offer them the uh, financing and I offer them the distribution, exactly like a movie producer. So I go to a brand and I pitch them my idea. Okay, so not the design, not the design. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, the design also. I, I, I pitch them the story. Okay, yeah. so, but that, so, so, okay, so what would be the, because again, you're humble, but what would be the difference between a creative director in the situation? Because you could be the producer and the creative director. I'm, I'm trying to give you credit here. <laughs> right, now, I mean, uh, a lot of producers are actually the creative directors. A lot of producers, um, but they, they may have bought the script or they may have the idea themselves or they may have asked somebody to to write the script for them. Uh, and in the, that's in that context. You know, I'm, I'm more of an independent movie producer, if you want to be more specific. Uh, so you, you get the script. You, you wrote it yourself. You bought it. You, you had the idea and you talked to a couple of people that put it together. I cannot even draw a straight line. Me, physically, I cannot do it. So usually I have an idea. I have somebody on my team does the uh, drawings for us. Uh, these are not the technical drawings. They're just little drawings that we put together with Photoshop. They're well done. They're done by a professional. And then I go and I pitch it. When I pitch it, I tell them I'm going to finance it, I'm going to buy it, and I'm going to distribute it. So the brand's, uh, the brand's risk is rather limited. Obviously, their name on it. Obviously, at some point, they also want to finance it. So they put some money in there too with me. And we then put it together. But it's, it's, it's a whole, uh, and then there's distribution where I do the marketing behind it. You know, I launch the products and we, we try to do a good job and uh, sell the watch fairly fast. Um, and they also may have a different distribution channel, like uh, in the case of Weira, um, where they have their own distribution, but they also have retailers all over the world that use the product. So it, it kind of works like this, uh, where... As a movie producer, you, you kind of see the three most important aspects, the creation, the uh, financing, and the distribution. And distribution is extremely important. And I think this was uh, a key element that the brands did not have before they uh, uh, could not see before the internet came. They never saw the internet as a possible distribution network. And it's people like me who kind of taught them that this is uh, a possibility to distribute on the internet. So... In terms of the design part, and I think that this is sort of, you know, the, the end part of the conversation, let's talk a little bit about that. You, you're not a designer in the sense that you're not a, a graphics person or an illustrator. I, I'm not as well. But you have sort of a sense. Uh, talk a little bit about working with the designer, right? There's, there's, there is someone you work with, I imagine, who is a visual designer. They, you know, they create mock-ups and things like that. How did you develop as someone that was able to work with the designer? Because designers have to understand what you want first, or you have to you know, just really trust someone and work with them. Talk a little bit about what that's like and, and some of the best practices. Because again, at the end of the day, if they're not able to you know, create a visual of what you want, you're not getting what, you, what, what, you're, what you're intending out of the project. Okay, so I, what I do is I create a mood board for the design, for the, for the person who's going to do the uh, actual drawings for me. So... What I do is I, I will create with pictures taken on the internet. I also have a very large library of watch books at home. I have over uh, 1,500 watch books and different literature that I've taken over the last 30 years. So I will go into my books, uh, magazines and stuff, and I will take pictures or scan stuff, and I will create a mood board. And from that mood board, I will give kind of an idea to uh, the person what kind of watch I want. 
And then usually I have a very specific idea in mind of a watch. I have built a watch in my head about the way I want it. So in the example of uh, the Louis Erard, where uh, 99% of the watch I really designed myself, um, the, the, the face, the dial, uh, I showed the uh, designer what uh, the Lu- Luca Soprana watch looked like. But Luca Soprana is a real gold dial. And obviously, we couldn't do this for a $3,900 watch. So we I told him to uh, redo it, just a plate at the bottom. And then we put different elements on top that I took from different aspects of the mood board. So it can be a different watch. It can be... Uh, something that I've seen on a picture somewhere on the internet. And he basically creates it. And um, and basically we come up with a mock-up of something that looks like a watch. This goes to um, uh, to the brand. I go with the brand, to the brand with that. And they have basically a very good idea of what the watch will look like. That's one way of doing it. The other way is uh, sometimes I just... Uh, throw a, a very simple drawing that uh, somebody has done for me to the brand and I pitch it like this and the brand comes back to me with a more specific drawing before we go even in um, uh, in the technical drawings, meaning, you know, technical uh, dial drawings and all this. The, the brand will come back to me with a much more elaborate drawing and then we start... Uh, uh, collaborating of different details, the font on the dial, the size of the hands, the position of the pushers. Um, uh, if, uh, if the, for example, if the chronograph hand is going to have a tail, um, we can go very specific. I'm, I'm very detail oriented, so it can go, that can go, that process can go for a month, two months, depending on how active they are. Usually a brand puts somebody just for me on the project. Uh, for this collab. So I have a key person at the brand and we will go over, and that's usually uh, somebody works in the product development and we will go through every specific things that I didn't like or that they don't like that. And then we, we, we talk about it. But usually I'm the one who goes over every uh, details over the, over the watch. Uh, obviously there are things that cannot be changed, you know, for somewhat people, the, the case, uh, cannot be changed that much or modified and obviously bracelets and things is kind of difficult but the dial itself you can basically do whatever you want but we also do certain finishing on movements for example with habring we did a, a rose finish a movement rose gold finishing on the movement it's plated um on the last watch we did on the lab zero three we do we do different things like this where we work into certain details. We created a logo for HSNY because HSNY is doing um, um, the timing certificate for the Lab Zero Three that we did with uh, uh, with Habring. So we created a logo that we're able to put on the balance cock. And uh, so I work with Richard on where to put the logo and the position and how it will look from a viewer angle. So we go over things like this. If uh, uh, or the position exactly of the uh, the hand to the markers uh, when the watch is working. It can go very specific. Fonts, uh, one brand, we're releasing a watch at the end of the year. We spent six months on the font. The font was like a big uh, headache for, for us. When do you know that you're done? I guess that's the very last question. At some point, you have to be like, you know what? We're going back and forth in designs. We just got to do something. There's no real deadlines, a lot of it is artificial. You at some point just need to say like, we're good. When do you know you're done? And what advice do you have for people, maybe who are designers out there or on a project? When do you just have to say, you know what, we, we have to commit, we got to do something? Um, well, you have excellent timing on this one because it happened today. We've been, I've been working on a project for the past uh, eight months and uh, we worked very hard today uh, on finishing the project and I wasn't very happy with the finishing of it. I want to change other things. But at one point, somebody on my team looked at it and said, it looks great, let's do it this way. And and I agreed to let it go. We there's, uh, You arrive to a point where you, sometimes you need somebody else to tell you, that looks great, stop. You, you're going to make it worse by adding stuff or being too detail-oriented. It, it's a bit like when you overdress with watches, you can uh, you can have this tendency. You, you go to a party and you, you put too many things on it and too many accessories and you start to look more like a clown than a well-dressed person. And that, that same thing can go with watches. You think about it too much 
And at one point, you look like uh, the watch is too much and nobody really likes it. William, this has been an amazing conversation. Um, I hope that people really enjoyed hearing about some of your history, how you approach this. I, I think that while there's a lot of detail in this conversation, when people see these collaboration watches out there or, or just any watch in general, they now know a little bit more about where it came about. Um, William, can you please tell everyone where they can learn more about yourself, Masena Lab, plug whatever you like right now? Um, you can go on our website. It's masenalab.com, M-A-S-E-N-A-L-A-B.com. You can always send us an email. You can uh, follow us on Instagram at uh, masenalab. You, uh, you can always get our, um, newsletter. We send, we usually don't send newsletter all the time. We do it when we have a launch and you can go on the website and sign up for the newsletter. We'll be happy to send you, uh, the newsletter when it comes out. And, uh, that's about it. Next, I can give you a scoop. Next uh, watch coming out will be the end of August. Wonderful. William, thank you so much. And thank you everyone for listening to this episode of the Superlative Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you, Aya. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com. <laughs>